and welcome to this month's Emergency Medicine Journal podcast for October 2023. I'm Sarah Edwards. And I'm Rick Buddy. And um, for you, those of you listening, it's a beautiful day and Rick and I have decided to sit in his back garden to record this. So there might be the occasional plane, there might be the occasional child playing in the background, but hopefully you'll be able to listen with us as we go through six great papers covering everything from the legal aspects of emergency medicine through to paediatrics and even a bit about trauma. And then Rick's going to round it off with some general sort of good stuff to know when thinking about papers and other ideas. So I'm going to start with a paper called The Emergency Department or the Emergency Medicine Service, Redefining the Boundaries of Responsibility for Emergency Care Litigation in England. And this paper is a research letter in the journal this month, and it's looking at clinical negligence claims. And one of the things that, you know, often worries me as a clinician is, you know, gosh, if I miss something or if I misdiagnose something, you know, the consequences and and looking at the legal aspects of what what happens. So within the United Kingdom, uh, any sort of clinical negligence that happens with the NHS um, is looked at what's called the NHS resolution. And this is the responsible body that looks after any claims or anything that happens to patients within the within not only the department but the hospital and it's run by the department of health and social care and essentially the idea is if a claim is put in for clinical negligence you know somebody looks at it and it's you know try to look at in as timely manner as possible as people know or may not know in the united kingdom in england particularly about 75 percent of acute admissions present via the emergency department and understandably you know we do get things wrong and things happen not in a way that we would hope so what they did um, was they had a look at retrospectively all the claims that had happened um, over nearly a 10-year period um, in Cambridge University Hospital Trust and this hospital sees around 120,000 patients per year what they found was that they had 39 emergency medicine allocated claims that were notified to the NHS uh, resolution body with an estimated um, sum of payouts in the end of £22.2 million. But what they wanted to try and do was actually, were they understand was, were they actually emergency medicine claims or were they claims that just happened to have happened, for example, within the emergency department, but there was a different specialty or team or something else involved? When they independently went through all the actual cases that were um, allegedly attributable to emergency medicine, they found actually only 20 of them were truly attributable to emergency medicine, uh, with a total value of £4.4 million of the the total cost, uh, with the rest of them. So the other half um, of claims that were originally allocated to emergency medicine being to other specialties. Um, And the average or the median value per claim uh, for emergency medicine case is was forty one point eight thousand pounds, with a range of between seventeen to one hundred and fourteen thousand pounds. Versus for other specialties, the median was ninety seven thousand uh, pounds, with a range of from forty three to one point five million pounds. So quite a lot of money. The 
emergency medicine attributable claims were, as you probably expected, sort of around minor injuries with either delayed diagnosis of treatment and misinterpretation of x-rays resulting in unnecessary pain. Why is this important? Because ultimately it's important that, you know, these claims are um, attributed to the right department for budgetary reasons, lots of things like that. But also actually when you're trying to unpick what's happened and trying to work out, is it an emergency medicine issue or is it, you know, specialties working within emergency medicine? We need to really tease that out and particularly for any heads of departments that are out there, particularly working within the UK, I think it's important that you consider um, this when thinking about how clinical negligence is managed within your department. Rick? I think it reinforces that we are diagnosticians in the emergency department. In 12 of the claims that were attributable to emergency medicine were due to a failure or a delay in diagnosis. And there were an extra two that were failure to interpret an x-ray, all of which are really to do with diagnosis. So it shows how important that part of our work is. Yeah, absolutely. And you've got another paper for us that you're going to talk about. Yes, yeah, so I've taken on a really interesting paper about silver trauma review clinics. So I'm sure most listeners will be aware of the concept of silver trauma, which is essentially describing trauma in older adults, uh, which is very different to the major trauma that we tend to see in younger adults. So in recent years, we've seen more and more focus on how we should manage silver trauma and how it's different to the major trauma in, in those younger adults. This paper describes a retrospective review of a clinical service in a Dublin hospital, which was a major trauma centre, and they set up a silver trauma review clinic. So this meant that older adults who had sustained trauma could be discharged from the emergency department and followed up in a silver trauma review clinic. And the authors here have presented a service evaluation of that clinic. So they treated 137 patients in that clinic over one year, and they've reported the demographics uh, of those patients and some of the outcomes of the patients that were treated in the clinic. I found this really interesting because it's quite a novel concept to have a silver trauma review clinic. The medium time that they saw them after discharge was 15 days, so it's actually quite a long time after discharge that they're picking the patients up. The majority of the presentations were falls from a standing height less than two metres, so 71% of the presentations were from that mechanism of injury, which fits with what we experience with silver trauma on a day-to-day basis in the ED. Now, at the silver trauma review clinic, they picked up some really interesting things. So they ran a tertiary survey on their patients, and in 18% of patients, they picked up unrecognised injuries. And that was quite an interesting finding here. So that included limb fractures, there were 11 of those, vertebral fractures, nine patients, five thoracic injuries, and one head injury that hadn't been recognised initially, so they were recognised only at the Silver Trauma Review Clinic. So they also did a comprehensive geriatric assessment for the patients who presented to the clinic, and that found some uh, interesting things too. There was an abnormal minicog assessment in 29% of the patients, They also did quite a bit of screening, so they had a look for osteoporosis. Most patients got a DEXA scan, and they had a new diagnosis of osteoporosis for 43% of the patients. They also diagnosed orthostatic hypotension in 13% of the patients. So that's a clear potential cause of the falls and the trauma in the first place. 
Uh, most patients, after being reviewed in the clinic, were discharged back to primary care. 19% were followed up in a specialist geriatric clinic. This kind of reinforced to me that silver trauma is a medical condition. There's a lot that goes on apart from the trauma. And there's a great opportunity in this the silver trauma review clinics, not just to pick up potential complications of the original trauma or new injuries that hadn't been spotted, but also many of the causes of the trauma or things that might compound it, like osteoporosis, for example. So we, it's really important not just, just to think of it as a, as a trauma issue, but also as a medical, and in this case, a geriatric issue. Sarah, what did you think? Yeah, I think um, there's a lot of underestimation for the potential for getting people back to what is normal for them. And I think particularly around, you know, our population is getting older and we need to try and get our older population back to what is good for them, not only for, you know, reasons for that it's great for them to get back to whatever they were doing before but actually from a societal point of view and really if we can get people back to where they were before care costs are less medical costs are less so i think it's really um a great opportunity this clinic to showcase um some really good care for our patients absolutely so hopefully now that this has been published we'll see more hospitals trying a similar initiative absolutely so moving on, I think you've taken a look at a study which looks at points of care ultrasound. Yeah, so um, this is a paper that is a randomised controlled trial, which is great to see um, on the, the utility of point of care ultrasound examinations in patients presenting with acute dyspnea. And this has been done by our Danish colleagues, um, with the first author being Michael Dan Arvig. So... POCUS or point of care ultrasound is you know being used a lot within emergency medicine and this paper wanted to understand to see if serial point of care ultrasounds so not just one but multiple through a patient's uh, journey through the emergency department can um, improve care around the dyspnea management for whatever reason to see if you can then titrate your management accordingly to how um, breathless the patient is feeling. So essentially their objective was to investigate if a treatment guided by monitoring patients with acute dyspnea with serial cardiopulmonary pocus and usual care could reduce the severity of dyspnea compared with usual care alone. And in this randomised controlled blinded outcome trial, this was conducted in three emergency departments in Denmark. And their aim really was to do this with patients over 18 years old who presented with a primary complaint of dyspnea or breathlessness. And they were allocated in a one-to-one block randomisation to either usual care um, or usual care plus pocus or multiple pocuses. So in the results, uh, there were 206 patients who were recruited. Um, 102 of them were in the serial ultrasound group and 104 in the control group. And the mean difference in the VDS between the patients in the serial ultrasound Mm -hmm. and the control group was minus 1.09. 
and uh, minus 1.66 after four and five hours, respectively. Therefore, the, the effect was more pronounced in patients with a presumptive diagnosis of acute heart failure, they found, uh, with a larger proportion of patients receiving diuretics in the serial ultrasound group. So what does this study actually add and, and does it make a difference? So in this randomised study, essentially they found that serial POCUS plus usual care had a greater reduction in the self-reported severity of dyspnea or breathlessness within five hours from arrival at an emergency department compared to those who were receiving a single ultrasound. So essentially what I think this means Rick is is that actually we should be doing more serial point of care ultrasounds for our breathless patients and it might help us guide their treatment. Really fascinating findings and I really like the design of the trial. We see lots of diagnostic accuracy studies of ultrasound and it's a bit like with biomarkers. It's easy to do the diagnostic accuracy studies but what really will make a difference is if we can run a trial where we see that outcomes of patients are better for using the test or the ultrasound scan. And here we've got that, um, a, a trial of ultrasound-based care, basically. Uh, and it's really interesting to see the positive findings. I would like to see another trial that's bigger with more outcomes, like mortality, for example, being studied. But this is a fantastic start to look at uh, symptom resolution with point-of-care ultrasound-guided care and um, fascinating that it really did make a difference. So clearly something we should be considering. Yeah, and I think as well, it's great to see more randomised control trials being done using point-of-care ultrasound because actually in recent years, you know, they've been like observational or they've been case series. And I think this is really great for an up-and-coming sub-specialty within emergency medicine. Absolutely. So moving on, we're going to go to paediatric emergency medicine. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> and I've had a look at something that's, I think, very important in paediatric emergency medicine, parental anxiety. Um, we look, there's a paper here from Sarah Martin and colleagues looking at predictors of parental anxiety in a paediatric emergency department. I think most people who've worked in a paediatric emergency department will be familiar with parental anxiety as something that's very important and influences the care that's provided, potentially influencing the outcome of the patients as well. There is some, there's some evidence, in fact, that if there is high parental anxiety, potentially the patients do worse. So this study had a look at uh, the factors that might influence parental anxiety. So it was from a, an emergency department in Orange County in California in America, and they recruited uh, parents of children who were less than 18 years old who presented to the ED with a non-psychiatric complaint so they reported some uh, demographics of the patients and then they assessed the anxiety of the parents using the state trait anxiety inventory. They used some different instruments as well to look at things that might predict parental anxiety or might be associated with it, such as the child's temperament, so their emotionality, their activity, their sociability and their shyness. Previous anxiety, parent physical health, parent mental health, and then they had a look at what was associated with parental anxiety levels. So there were 120 patients or parents enrolled in this study. And 42.5% of them reported clinically significant levels of anxiety when they were in the emergency department. So the first thing to point out is that that's quite a big number. Uh, it is as common as 
we would we would guess from our lived experience when they did their regression analysis to have a look at which factors were associated with parental anxiety they found the things that the things that were significantly associated and independent predictors of anxiety were a tendency of the child to be less active or energetic and poorer parent mental health they were independently associated with higher levels of uh, parental anxiety the clinical condition or the severity of the clinical condition of the child did not independently affect parental anxiety that was a really interesting finding i thought so this helps us to identify the times when parental anxiety might be a factor helps us perhaps understand this a little bit better and that's really important because as i said before there's some evidence that it might affect patient outcomes so if we can identify the times when parents are more likely to be anxious for example if we're aware if the, if the, if the parent has mental health conditions if their child is less active for example then um, it might help us to just be more on guard about the fact that the parent might be feeling anxious and then we can take measures to try and address that parental anxiety what do you think about this sarah you've got you've got a particular interest in pediatric emergency medicine um yeah i i think what's interesting about the finding here is that actually irrespective of the child's clinical condition um, those other factors that you mentioned um, influence sort of parental anxiety and I think it really goes to show you know when you see a child with a parent or guardian um, really those those questions that we were often taught you know way back when when we're learning to take histories around you know those ice things so the ideas the concerns and expectations are really important to elicit from these history and really understand why is it the parent has brought the child in today what is it the parents worried about and I say this because this I think this paper beautifully demonstrates that because clearly there is something else that might be driving reasons for why people are coming into the emergency department and all of them valid um, and I think that definitely needs a little bit of unpicking and it may be people's past experiences it may be their backgrounds it may be lots of other things that are going on but I think this is really interesting work that needs exploration and I'd love to know a bit more about that. Yeah fascinating insights and our next paper is fairly similar because you've taken a look at a survey of young people's experiences in the emergency department. Yeah so this title uh, of this paper called Finding Voices, a survey of young people's um, experiences in the emergency department. So really you know marrying the parental experiences. Uh, this is looking at it from the other side and this is by Lisa Keating um, from the Berkshire uh, in the United Kingdom uh, in one of the hospitals there. So essentially what this uh, work was looking to try and understand um, was to pilot a new and existing measure that they had within the department to capture the perceived needs and expectations of those young people attending to the emergency department following self-harm compared to those who were attending with suspected fractures. So um, essentially they did questionnaires which were um, a variety of different types of questionnaires looking at things like mood, um, depression, anxiety, lots of things like that and they approached young people uh, to, to complete them. 
The survey was started back in 2019 and unfortunately, due to a very small global pandemic, came to a swift end in March 2020. Um, and they'd screened 917 uh, potential uh, patients and they had 104 adolescents that were recruited in. Um, all the measures that they used, um, and it's worth having a look at the paper of all the measures that they used, there's quite a few of them, and I'll come on to talk about those in a minute, um, had a satisfactory psychometric property with internal consistencies or alpha of about 0 0.75. Um, and the two patient groups differed at baseline. It was found that the self-harm group had a slightly lower mood on the short mood and feelings questionnaire and scored more highly on the borderline personality feature scale for children than the uh, suspected fractures group. Uh, both those um, factors had a p-value of less than 0 0.001, so fairly significant. But interestingly, expectations of care across both groups were similar. However, using the experience measures, the self-harm group was less satisfied with treatment than those that were presenting with suspected fractures and that p-value was 0.0263. So this work I think is quite unique and you know it, it does show that you can engage young people within research within the emergency department um, and it's interesting because they both have the same set of expectations but overall the uh, patients that presenting with self-harm compared to those with self-suspected fractures had generally um, a less satisfying experience. Um, clearly, I think we need a little bit more work on this, Rick. Yeah, we do. Interesting. I mean, it's a shame that it got cut short by the COVID-19 pandemic, but I'm glad they published their findings because it will help to inform further work in this really important area. I guess some of the findings weren't a surprise that they... Uh, patients who presented with self-harm were more likely to report short mood and feelings, for example. Um, and there were no differences for the rest of the outcomes reported, but it's really difficult to draw a conclusion from that because of the small numbers. Uh, it was very interesting to me that um, the, in a self-harm group, they seemed to be more satisfied with the treatment than in the suspected fracture groups. That was quite an interesting finding, which I perhaps hadn't expected <laughs> um but i guess um this is this is interesting work that needs to lead on to something else actually because we need to see it in a larger sample what does it really mean but it's, it's a great start yeah absolutely and then finally some slightly a little bit different for us yeah so i've taken a look at a concept paper written by steve goodacre and this is an area that's close to my heart it's about risk prediction models um and what we're trying to predict so Steve Goodacre and his team in Sheffield led the priest study during the COVID-19 pandemic. They developed a prediction model uh, for COVID-19 to try and predict patient outcome, as well as a number of different outcomes. And they'd reported their findings, some of them in the EMJ actually, and some of them, some of them I think in the BMJ. And these are Steve's reflections really on the process of deriving a risk score and the sort of things that we might need to be cautious about when applying them in practice. So priests, for example, found that they could predict mortality, but the, the, the risk score that was used to predict mortality didn't necessarily 
predict escalation of treatment or use of critical care resources. Uh, and there's a, the, perhaps the reason is that a lot of the patients that were being identified as high risk of mortality were identified as potentially having futility and being therefore an expected death. And that leads us to a, a little bit of a problem with the risk score because it, what it means is, okay, you might be telling us the patients are high risk of mortality, but if there's nothing we can do about it, is that really helpful? The ones we really want to identify are the ones where there's a chance to intervene and do something a bit more differently. So that's the first point uh, that Steve's made, really, is that we've got to think about the outcomes that we're predicting and whether it's actually modifiable. He also made a really good point about some of the predictors in risk scores. So there are some predictors that will predict outcome, but again, they might not be telling us that there's anything we can do about it. So use the examples of the EDAX score, for example, for acute coronary syndromes and the PESI score for pulmonary embolism, both of which are used in a quite widespread way in practice. And they both incorporate some long-standing features from patients like cardiac risk factors, for example, or things about the patient's age and demographics. Now, those things are always going to predict outcome. You're always going to be more, have a higher mortality if you're older. If you have more comorbidities, the mortality is going to be higher. The important thing to recognise is that that's not necessarily telling that there's, something, that there's something that we can do about it, or that there's something acute going on right now. It just might be that they're at you know, higher risk of something happening in the future, but there's not actually something acute going on. So I think Steve's conclusion is really that we just have to be cautious and appreciate the nuances with clinical prediction models uh, and understand, I guess, that we need to use them in a, in a more sophisticated way than just saying this patient is high risk, therefore I'm going to give them this treatment. Because it doesn't necessarily follow that that treatment is going to improve their outcome. We've got to do a bit of thinking around it. And I guess the bottom line is that we've got to see these prediction models as assistive rather than directive. Yeah, I think those are very honest reflections about, you know, some of the lessons learned. And I think, you know, for any up and coming researchers that are thinking to look into this, I think it's really important to be pragmatic in what you might be trying to develop. And I think you hit the nail on the head there with, well, it's all very well having a prediction score, but actually if it doesn't change what you're going to do, then what is it you're trying to achieve and does it matter? Absolutely. And I think it links to the paper you presented on points of care ultrasound, that for some of the particularly prognostic models where we're trying to predict outcome, what we really want is a trial to show that using it in practice led to better patient outcomes. That's the proof of the pudding. Absolutely. And I think we will end it there. Thank you very much for listening. Hopefully the planes, the children, the birds and everything else didn't distract you too much from the podcast this month. And we will see you next month. And hopefully that will be from the Royal College of Emergencies Medicine's uh, annual scientific meeting all the way up in Glasgow. A very different ambience to my uh, back garden. Hope the planes weren't too intrusive. Take care. Bye-bye.